here at Rocket Space in London with a very special Blockchain Insider Live. And today we bring you lightning strikes in Bitcoin land. Mark Carney says crypto is no risk to financial stability on the eve of the G20 and Binance gets its decks on. We have the crowd, but we also have some guests. Um, joining me as always is the one and only Colin G. Platt, not near a field. How are you, sir? I thought we weren't making field jokes today. You gotta make a field joke. That's what we do on this podcast, by the way. We make lots of jokes about foliage and fields. You'll get used to it. And, and payments, unfortunately. But and those, payments, there's a lot. Those don't go very far. But welcome back to the show, sir. Good to have you with us. They let you into the country. Uh, unfortunately for them, but yes. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, joining us is 11FS and FinTech Insider regular, the one and only Mr. Jason Bates. How are you? Great to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. We have the returning Sarah Van Fienen van Scalina um, from Clearmatics, making your name harder to say each every and every day, aren't you? Thank you very much for having me back. Welcome back. And the one and only the superstar, the man himself, the man of the hour, the man with the power. <laughs> it is Mr. Richard Crook. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. <laughs> Try and beat that intro, people. All right, before I get started, I want to let you know that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is actually an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact in strict privacy. And I believe a lot of banks are using this today to move real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. It's a result of a collaborative effort led by a company called R3, if you've heard of them, um, and with over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. You can go to corda.net to learn more. All right, with the ads done, it's time to get into the news. All right, first story. Um, the first story we have is from a publication called Cointelegraph. If you've not heard of it, do check it out. Uh, the first Bitcoin mainnet lightning network product launches, which is a heck of a sentence. Colin, can you just pause what on earth that means? So the first Bitcoin, we know about Bitcoin, Bitcoin's mainnet, Lightning Network, there's a product launch. Unpick this for me, make sense of it, please. Let me start with the part that makes sense. The, the people behind it raised two and a half million dollars. Like, well, we know what that means, right? Somebody <laughs> launched a product and raised some money. Yeah, I mean, it, it's small beans in, in this game, right? It, it's not $3.5 trillion or whatever they're normally raising. So uh, what, what is Lightning Network? Um, why is Lightning Network, I guess is a better point. Um, Bitcoin, for those that have been following it for a little while, have noticed that uh, transactions are starting to get clogged up and cost more money than they did back when nobody was using Bitcoin because there are people using Bitcoin um, and there is a limit. It was at 1.7 transactions a second. We had an upgrade at some point last year to introduce something called SegWit. We're roughly double that, maybe triple that, depends. Uh, let's put that in some context though, Rich. Seven transactions a second compared to some of the other payment systems out there. How does that benchmark? Uh, you, you've got to recognize that you're looking at totally or different orders of magnitude. So seven uh, transactions a second is, is not what you're looking for. Uh, 100 transactions a second is, is effectively what a domestic uh, payment system is. So domestic payment system being local clearing. So if you're using your bank account at home and you're trying to send money to somebody in the same country. No, that's correct. And if you're looking at someone like the, the euro area uh, and the euro payments, you're looking up at a thousand transactions per second. Uh, those are the sorts of numbers. If you then want to move on to something like Visa, uh, you're, you're in another order of magnitude above that. Mm -hmm. So the Bitcoin network uh, at its heart has a scaling problem and that's what Lightning's trying to resolve. Right. So this Lightning thing is there to make Bitcoin go faster. 
But doesn't it also have a problem with how long it takes to make one of these transactions? Because while it might be 1.7 a second, that doesn't mean it takes you you know, a second in order to do it. You've got 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however long it takes to be baked into a block. Yeah, so these Bitcoin blocks happen on average every 10 minutes. So I could put a transaction through that then is confirmed by the network anytime between, well, right after that, or at some point in the future if I didn't pay enough. Um, and at some point in the future could be infinite. Um, but on average, let's say they get into the next block, or the next two or three blocks, it's either 10, 20, or 30 minutes. So what they were trying to solve is not how do I make those blocks come faster because that's inherent in the network. It's how can you and I confirm a transaction. So what they've done is they've created kind of a second layer network is actually what they call these things where let's say Jason and I put some money into a contract and we're moving money back and forth in this second level. And every once in a while we say, all right, I want to cash out and I can just go cash out. Kind of think of it like going to the casino and moving chips around. Yeah, I, I heard it described like it was a safe or a kitty. It's like actually if we were going to go out and, and uh, put money in and take money out, rather than going to the bank, getting money out, going to the bank, putting money in, we could have a little safe here. We'd all have different uh, numbers to open the tumbler and we'd all be able to put money in and out. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that has to be cashed in somewhere and someone takes it to the bank to uh, to put in. I think that's, that's very well described in the same way that you might only empty that once a day. That means you only need to take a trip once a day to the bank, which means you spend less time. It costs less money to do it. Same idea in Bitcoin. Rather than paying for a, a thousand transactions over the course of a day, which may only be between one and ten dollars, uh, we just do one big one at the end of the day, which settles out millions of dollars of transactions. But if you look at it from a, this is a technical challenge, scaling, performance, and if we tried to run Netflix on the internet of the 90s, it wouldn't have worked. You only could run Netflix and you can only have Netflix because over the last 20 years, they've invested a lot of money making the internet capable of being able to run Netflix. And the same is true of any of these blockchain technologies where they started, they've solved a problem, they've created a cryptocurrency, now you're trying to scale it, well, you've got to improve it. What you're looking at here is a now a proper peer-to-peer -peer as opposed to the shared spreadsheet that Bitcoin started with. So you're starting to see convergence across the technologies where some of the technologies started with peer-to-peer -peer and that's how they solve scaling to start with. Yeah, and it's great to see some of these infrastructure problems still being solved. And this really is, is not to be sniffed at. This is a massive feat of engineering that goes down to some serious maths on group level and uh, group theory and uh, graph theory, sorry, and, and pathfinding. And it's, it's impressive to see that some of this has actually come onto the mainnet now. It's impressive that it's going live. So they released the first Bitcoin mainnet ready lightning network implementation on the 15th of March. So this thing that makes it go faster called lightning has gone onto the uh, Bitcoin mainnet as of the 15th of March. What I like about this, hands up if you've heard of Square, the company Square, you've not heard of Square? One or two people, hey, David has. Okay, so a few people. So uh, hands up if you've heard of Twitter. Okay, so that's just about everybody. So the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, has actually come out and said um, that we, th we think this is um, really, uh, let's have a look. They led a list of seed funders who've l raised this $2.5 million. So if the founder of Twitter thinks this thing's interesting, that's an interesting timing perspective, isn't it? It's sort of saying, ah, this is nearly there. But haven't 
a few people in the industry also come out and said, yes, it's nearly there, but this isn't something that you really want to be running lots of transactions on. I mean, what, there are 2,000 of these channels, these safes. So that's not at scale. And also people have said, like, is this, uh, is this solid? I mean, after the Dow and all of, all, you know, the variety of problems you've had, is this really something you want to trust with your cash? Yeah, I mean, this thing is still in beta. So it's on the main network, but it's still beta, meaning it's not ready for public consumption. And there's the adoption. You only have 2,000 channels where you have, uh, depending on how you measure it, probably millions of, of accounts that you can interact with on Bitcoin at any given time. So it's an order of magnitude smaller. And I think the other key thing in it being beta is when you lose money in Bitcoin, you lose money. And these things are what still, even though the prices come down, around $9,000 each. So I'd rather not lose them. I, I just think it's interesting as well uh, that you get those uh, kind of big names saying this could be nearly ready. When, it, when you look at what's been happening in payments for some time, we've had lots of local peer-to-peer payment apps in the UK. We had uh, PayM and we've seen Circle in the US and we've seen you know, pretty much everybody can send money to their friends on their mobile phone now. But to be able to do it immediately, globally, without necessarily a bank in the, in the middle of the transaction, that could be really, really powerful, but it's still super early. I like this thing from the blog post as well. In this early phase, we're focused on just providing the software to bootstrap the network for the future. So we've got to keep an eye on this one without question. Well, doesn't Jameson Lop call these things laps or lightning applications? Oh, there's some definite jargon out there. But staying with Bitcoin, uh, the next story comes from Cointelegraph again. So you guys, you know, Cointelegraph, put out a lot of stories if you want to learn about the blockchain stuff. Um, not an endorsement. Um, Bitcoin investors apparently have no clue, thinks the Visa chief financial officer. So, show of hands, has anybody bought any Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? None of you have a clue. <laughs> so about 25% of the audience, would you say there, Jason? Yeah, but I think this is unfair because I actually went and read the Financial Times interview that this refers to. And what the guy was saying is that uh, he jumped into a limo and the limo driver was like, so Bitcoin, yeah, you know, I've heard it's the new thing, I should buy it. He went to a, like a Thanksgiving dinner and one of his sort of younger relatives was saying, oh, I've doubled my money in Bitcoin, I'm going to put much more into it. So actually, when you looked at the, the stories and the backdrop, there was a lot of, well, what we've been talking about, that, that it is a casino, it is something you can bet. But actually, there's a lot of people out there who know nothing about the industry that are seeing this as a way of doubling, tripling, quadrupling their money in a low interest rate environment. Yeah, I mean, he did also, he did also say that uh, all of the dirty politicians and crooks are using Bitcoin as well. Tad unfair. Yeah, which is a little bit unfair. And plus, as we've talked about on a number of occasions before, Bitcoin is not the best way to hide nefarious activity. Uh, we've spoken about this on a, on a show before that Monero might be slightly better and actually Litecoin is favoured by um, Russian yeah. people, I'm not calling them nefarious, but to, <laughs> to hide illicit activities. Bitcoin was primarily known as the currency people use to buy drugs on the internet, right? Let's, let's call a spade a spade. That's, that's what it was known for. But actually, turns out, uh, the police have come out and said, if you use Bitcoin to buy stuff, it's pretty easy to figure out what you're doing. So it's probably not a good idea to be using Bitcoin if you're doing illicit activities. But this idea that um, people who are buying, selling Bitcoin have no clue, and are, uh, it's a real shock to him. I think Jason has something that 
there about investor protections. Don't, buy, don't spend money you can't afford to lose. Recognize that you're at the casino. Cryptocurrencies could make you go broke if you don't know what you're doing. And if you do know what you're doing, they could still make you go broke. There's a mixture of people there. There's, there's people at one end who are clearly seeing it as a gamble. And they, they rather than put the money on the horses or the dogs, you know what, this is fun. And, and they're enjoying it going up and they're enjoying it going down. Probably not as much going down as up. As up. <laughs> there, there are a group of people who are investing, who believe they're investing in the next wave of technology. So they think they're investing in the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks. And, and the recognition that actually what they're investing in is what they can invest in, which are the public blockchains, the Dashes, the Bitcoins, the Zcashes, the Ripples, when actually the majority of the beneficiary to the, uh, the use of blockchain is all going to be on the enterprise side. And the actual investment in that side is in all things like Hyperledger, Corda, uh -huh. uh, and Ethereum, and the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance. So actually, you're struggling to invest at this point if you're investing on the public side, on the public blockchain, if you think you're actually buying into the next tech wave, because the next tech wave is not on that side. And that's what the VCs keep pointing out, which is they're not buying into the crypto side and the public side because that isn't going to be where the actual value is going to be. It's going to be on the enterprise side. And that's why some of these infrastructure projects like the Lightning Network we just spoke about before are so important because it actually helps Bitcoin and other public blockchain uh, units of account become a mechanism for payment and me mechanism for transfer of value as opposed to buying something that you think somebody will buy off you for more. But is anyone really using Bitcoin or or cryptocurrencies as a munis of exchange? Not really as a means of exchange, because a means of exchange means you're moving it around day-to-day, person-to-person, and it's replacing cash, and it's not cash-like. Maybe, we were talking about Lightning earlier, maybe when it gets this upgrade, people will use it like cash, but the reality is people are using it as a speculative asset, more like a commodity. People invest today in uh, coal and gas and oil and all kinds of stuff, and it's, it's more of a store of value and, and a speculative it's, asset. It's got tremendous utility. If you look at... If you look at the, uh, the, the USB keys that the burglar sold, stole from my house, you know, he's using that to then use those keys to transfer value back and forward. We've already just described the utility it has in the criminal fraternity, uh, and the Metropolitan Police have come out and, and made, that, made that quite clear. We've also seen uh, a tremendous increase in the value, uh, avoiding, and I'm sorry, not avoiding, evading capital controls, uh, moving uh, Chinese wealth offshore uh, from, from China. You know, if you look at the price of Bitcoin in places like Venezuela, Greece, uh, Turkey, in high inflation countries or where you have large capital controls in place, this is a fantastic utilitarian coin. It also, also recognise, right, given I work for the Royal Bank of Scotland, that's illegal. Yeah. All right, so those utilities are there to try and evade the laws that are in place in your jurisdiction. So yes, it's got great utility but as a way of getting round the regulation that's in place as a way of protecting customers. And this is where the panel comes alive. <laughs> that's what blockchains are good for, breaking the law. Oh, so this is, uh, this is like the enterprise versus public blockchain argument all over again, right? So Rich said a moment ago, it, the value's in enterprise. Uh, Colin, and now there's a view the that, that, that the value is in crime, according to Colin. Uh, that, but, you know, no, take Colin's the, advice with a pinch of salt. Let's be clear. The, the, you always, all new technologies are always used in the adult industry and the criminal industry first. That's where you always see it. And the aspect of Bitcoin or Ripple, these are first movers. And to that 
you've seen the emergence of a first move advantage in Bitcoin. Yahoo, Netscape, Napster. Napster, they all had first move advantage in this space. The key technological advantage they've got, uh, advancements they've made, is we've now got a digital asset that's holding its value in market conditions. People are trading this back and forward, and we've never seen that. Tried it with movies, DVDs, uh, didn't work. Tried it with CDs, uh, tried to encrypt it, didn't work. So fundamentally, we have a technological breakthrough. Uh, there's a novelty there, UTXO and everything else that comes with it, we get. Whether Bitcoin or Ripple are going to be there uh, as the uh, forms of settlement going forward, I think I would put them in the bucket with Yahoo uh, and, and Netscape and everything else. But that's why Visa is, is, is worried and other payment rails as well, because if this, uh, perhaps not Bitcoin or Ripple or any of these that we see now, but if this as a medium of exchange does become popular and global and worldwide and accepted and adopted on such a scale that Visa has done and MasterCard have done, then they should be very afraid. I think so. And there's a bit of sort of talking down the potential enemy and wanting the potential enemy to be regulated in the future. So saying it's all for crooks and it's all for criminals kind of means that the regulators come in and squash the thing and then you don't have to worry about that threat. But actually, to Colin's point, in between his cheekiness, what he was actually saying is the more you try and stop Bitcoin, the better it gets at not being stopped. Um, and so really what you're doing is creating more of a problem for yourself if you do try and clamp down on it more and more, which kind of leads to our next story. It does indeed. So our next story comes from Coindesk, another publication out there where if you want to get educated on the subject of blockchain, check out Coindesk. Not an endorsement, but it's, it's out there. Um, so Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of England, but also sits as the chair of the Financial Stability Board, which was set up in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis to help global central banks and global regulators deal primarily with the financial crisis. Um, they've been looking at uh, a number of issues, and one of them they looked at was cryptocurrency and would it impact the real economy? In other words, would cryptocurrency bring down um, the US economy, the European economy? Would it cause instability? And, well, what do they think, Colin? Well, it's like to point out the irony here. He's the head of a group that was set up in response to something that they couldn't monitor effectively before, even though it was their job. And now he's saying, we're not overly concerned about cryptocurrencies because they're not big enough to be concerned with. He pointed out that at the time of the financial crisis, CDS or um, credit default swaps were in excess of 100% of global GDP by notional. And he's saying these are at best 1%. So if they fail, it's, you know, some people are going to lose their shirts, but it's pretty contained, which I think I would agree with. But also those people losing their shirts are retail investors and are they able to absorb those losses in the same way that the hedge funds and the big banks could theoretically? Well, and so this is why the, um, this question that the central banks are answering is not the same question as investor protection or money laundering, right? So if you look at what the G20 and the central banks have actually come out and said about cryptocurrencies, the first thing they said is we don't understand what they are. So can we understand them better? The second thing is, are they going to affect the global economy? The third thing is, we think your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, you might lose your shirt, might lose some money. And the third thing is, we, uh, the fourth thing, sorry, is 
we think that people might be using it for crime or nefarious purposes. The central banks have only answered that second question, is it going to affect the economy? The central banks and the FSB haven't answered the question of, we don't understand it. They haven't answered the question of, uh, we think retail investors might be hurt. And they haven't answered the question of what's happening with money laundering. Although in this report, they do say, well, there are some good regulations out there that you could kind of copy. I think if you look at the, the, the G20 um, coming up uh, and what Mark Carney is doing is, is, is briefing as he goes into that, uh, the G20 agenda specifically holds an agenda item around this space. It's not cryptocurrencies per se. It is the raising of capital that has uh, exploded over 2017. So Kickstarter, which was raising capital for projects, raised $3.5 billion in six years from, from its in- inception. They raised over five billion in nine months in 2017. They raised another billion in January. This is growing, and that's what's actually raising the interest of the regulator, who are there to protect customers. And just as Sam was pointing out, the regulator is interested in protecting those customers who happen to be voters too. And they're writing to their congressmen and their uh, MPs to say, we lost a load of money in the, in the fall over January, what are you doing about this? And what the regulator is recognizing is actually they have a, an innovative technology that's allowing the primary issuance of financial instruments, the raising of capital, and the purchase of that capital to investors. So what actually is investment banking? Yeah. And they are starting to ask the question as to how do we balance the enforcement of the existing regulation, which would be shut it down, because you're not regulated to do this, versus this is novel, this is new, and we don't want to put the fires out on innovation. So where's the balance? Where's the trade-off? So Colin, unpick that for me, because I think what Rich is talking about is how the global formation of capital, in other words, the ability for pretty much anyone to do Kickstarter on steroids for pretty much any project that doesn't yet exist. So ICOs, um, hands up if you've heard of ICOs in the audience. There you go. Everyone's heard of the ICOs. That's more than people that heard about Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this audience really knows about ICOs. All right, so um, global formation of capital. Walk me through that and why it might be interesting if I'm somebody uh, that's in the financial markets. Right, so a lot of these companies that exist that we all know about, the, the Googles, the Apples of the world, that have existed for a little while now, all started from a country and most of their money came from that country. Right now, we don't associate necessarily a Google or an Apple with the US, even though that's where they're based because they are everywhere. But their investors came from the US, which means the people who benefited from getting in early to Google all live in the US, which meant the, the formation of capital was local. Exactly. And, and even more than just local, it was down to Silicon Valley, really, at the beginning for those companies. Um, What's kind of promising about ICOs, whether you love or hate ICOs, is is kind of another story. But they brought up this question of, should investments in this new wave of of infrastructure, this new technology, should it be localized, or can we make it more global? And having something like a Bitcoin or an Ether or a Ripple or whatever it is, allows you to send money everywhere in the world that can be accessed anywhere in the world for any kind of project that's based anywhere in the world. And not all of them are good projects that are going to be the next Google. Uh, they could be the next Google Glass. So what are some of the problems with ICOs? Does anybody want to take a view on that? What, what's gone wrong so far? I mean, Rich, you sort of talked about... Uh, <laughs> Can we start with what's gone right? Yeah, Because uh, pe- people have raised some money, but then they're, they're talking to regulators and saying, hey, these guys have walked away with my money, or these girls have walked away with my money. Um, why, might they, why might they look... Um, 
sort of down on that? Is it just the fact that it's not happening in one country, or is it the fact that like stuff's really going wrong here? So you, you're looking at um, two, two sides. This is primary issuance and secondary trading. So every time uh, you go out to the market to get capital and you raise it, um, you need a distribution network to, to pull in. And, and the, the people that are buying that instrument are usually sophisticated investors who are allowed to buy those uh, instruments. When I say allow, what's actually built up over the years, mostly since the 20s, 1920s, is a series of protections that protect customers from buying dubious financial instruments. And those financial instruments could be anything. It could be a Ponzi scheme, it could be a, a pyramid scheme. They're actually, if there is an opportunity to do those types of schemes, they will do them. And you know, things like CryptoKitties are dubious. Oh. oh, you mentioned it, the Crypto Kitty. We need a jingle, by the way, media team. We need a Crypto Kitties jingle. Hands up, have you heard of Crypto Kitties? Okay, Google Crypto Kitties. <laughs> that, that's your takeaway. This is your homework from tonight, Vlerick Business School. Google Crypto Kitties. You will learn all sorts. I mean, but um, Rich has got a point here that actually through from the 20s, people have tried every game possible to extract money from unsuspecting rubes. You know, people you can just take that cash from. And that through, uh, through that period, there's just been a collapse, crime, crash, all kinds of fraud going on, and that we've built... Uh, the banking system. Well, we've built regulation around at least providing some level of protection against the last crime and last collapse and last crash. And arguably what you're seeing with ICOs is an accelerated timeline. Well, all of a sudden, we're back to the 1920s and people are coming in, trying every possible scheme that's worked insider trading, you know, Ponzi schemes. We have seen this movie before. (laughs) So uh, the the key thing here is that the regulation's there for a reason. We don't just make it up. Um, The the regulator puts it in, usually uh, as a response to something that's occurred, and they put that in over time and and it grows. The financial crisis uh, created what we usually describe as a tsunami of regulation that actually smothered um, a lot of the banks and the financial institutions. And and actually, what we're starting to see probably is a, and I say probably only because it's only starting to emerge now, is a pent-up demand from retail customers or retail uh, investors who wish to invest but now can't because actually a lot of the conduct risk and a lot of the investor risk means that they've been pushed out and away from the space. So I think what we're starting to see from a response from the regulator is a recognition that probably actually we need to start looking at the ICO market as a, as a signal for some pent-up demand that we haven't been able to bring into the financial institutions and the fishermen. Which is interesting from those haves and have-nots. I mean, a sophisticated investor might get I don't know, 4%, 5%, 7% over a long period of time with the stock market. Yet someone who's poorer and can get their 100 basis points or something on a savings account is never going to be able to get that, that kind of response. So to Simon's point before, and I know you've, I've heard you talk about this, the fact that, uh, if anything, cryptocurrencies have, have got people more into a speculative mindset that, hey, I don't earn that much money, but it means that I can actually start to speculate you know, has to bring has to bring benefits. No, I, I hope so. Right? We don't know because there are risks out there. But you've seen um, hands up if you've heard of Revolut. 
Okay, that's pretty much everybody. Okay, Revolut's doing well with this audience. Okay. What's Square doing wrong with this yeah, audience? Yeah, why didn't why do you guys go Square? They went to Revolut today. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys went to their office, right? That's why you've heard of them. Um, so those guys added uh, the ability to buy some cryptocurrencies, uh, so Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and a couple of others, into their app and saw massive increase in signups. And it's a good way to get attention and get people thinking about money. And naturally, the, the fact that it's exciting and it's the wild west people come for the crypto but might stay for something else and if they're thinking about something else that's a good thing because we have a, a number of generations now that haven't been doing that if you just put cash under your bed then you're losing money but savings accounts at a bank are just the same as putting cash under your bed you're, you're effectively losing money on that because of inflation so uh, next story, um, slight change of gear, again it comes from Coindesk. Um, JP Morgan's Amber Balde, so Amber works at JP Morgan, on what enterprise wants from Ethereum. What does enterprise want from Ethereum? Does anybody want us to take this one? Uh, Sarah, maybe? Yeah, it was very interesting talk and Amber's done a great job at uh, bringing together that enterprise and that public space in Ethereum and, and building that bridge in between the two. And what she said and, and what we believe as well, we're also a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance is that there's not, that, uh, what the public blockchain community want and the enterprise community want aren't that far apart. Oh, really? Because, I mean, if, what Rich was saying earlier was that they're, they're quite different. So do we have a disagreement on the panel? Ooh. I think in terms of infrastructure improvements, they're not that far apart. So increased privacy is something that's always being researched in the public space and, and in the enterprise space as well. And performance, the first story we had was about scaling and enterprise, as, as Rich very correctly pointed out, it needs to go a long, a long way towards matching the throughput that we currently see in financial markets and other you know, corporate markets as well. Um, there are some differences and I think a lot of those differences come down to ideology in some parts. And I think there's there's an um, ideology question here because one of the memes I hear a lot from senior executives is not just if it's cryptocurrency, it's evil hacker money, but we like the technology. You know, the the cryptocurrency bad, distributed ledger technology good. I think misses some nuance maybe. There's there's not as you can have sometimes you can have something that's currency or bears value as a token that is valuable, but it's because it's uh, because it's a token that's baked into the technology, it's not necessarily bad. And it looks like Amber's sort of saying that here. She says she spends a lot of time talking about Ethereum and cryptocurrency and open blockchains to enterprises, businesses, central banks and corporates. Um, she doesn't spend a lot of time going the other way. No, and that is interesting because of the story we were just talking about the ICO is, uh, as we've just discussed, there's regulation around this creation and issuance of securities and secondary trading. And had the community spent researched on what laws were already out there, then we might not have seen so many of these security tokens, or, or maybe we would have, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, that's, but that is a very good point that she's made, that the conversation is sort of one-sided, but that's what the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance is, is there to do, really, and I, I'm sure that with the other sort of technology stacks, there's perhaps a similar bridging, too. It's, it, I was going to say, you, you're looking at another, uh, another one of the technical challenges uh, that the public blockchains have got, and this one is privacy. So you've got to understand where Quorum came from, which is uh, a way of creating a privacy uh, over the top of uh, a very open network. Ethereum is a eventual, consistent, uh, eventual consistency network, which means that it's shared everything. If I do a transaction with Simon, everybody else gets to see it. Actually, everybody gets to see it across the, the entire audience. And actually, 
in an enterprise space, specifically in the financial services, I don't want you all to see the transaction I'm about to make with Simon. Um, in actual fact, there are regulations around some of the privacies that we have to have when we're doing these financial uh, transactions. So what you're trying to do is take, it's not an ideological difference, it's an architectural difference, which is you have a technology platform which has shared everything, and you're now trying to stop it sharing everything. And that's what Quorum is doing. It's a, it's a privacy layer over the top. So pretty much the old saying of you wouldn't want to start here is a good start. And, and if we look back at Lightning uh, and the original story, you wouldn't want to start here. You actually want to start with peer-to-peer -peer and then decide whether you want to share it to everybody. And I think if you go back and turn the clock back a, a few years, when we brought together the R3 company and the distributed ledger group, the whole purpose of that was these technologies are good, we like them, they are not finance grade, they're not regulatory friendly, and they're not enterprise ready. So let's stand up and put money on the table to build a finance grade, regulatory friendly, enterprise grade ledger, and that's what we did with Corda. Uh, went out there and made them go and build as a ledger that would actually work for the financial service industry, which, funny enough, has peer-to-peer, which is exactly what Lightning's doing, and starts with a shared nothing architecture, which is what Quorum is. What you then recognize on the public side is they've got um, pieces of functionality which we don't have on the enterprise side. The unit of value, i.e. a store of value, we still haven't been able to create on the Hyperledger side or the quarter side, and that's a fascinating crossover. But what they're trying to solve is a problem that we already have, we already have the regulation that we have to stay within, as opposed to start with the technology and see if it will fit. But it makes me think of uh, Richard Brown's talk about distributed ledger technology being a series of a menu of choices. And actually, the design choices you make and the trade-offs lead you down a path towards the product, the service you want to create. And actually, the in my view, or the people I've spoken to on the, in the crypto community have a, do have a very strong ideology that leads to a certain set of choices, which has led to Bitcoin and Zcash and Monero and those things. And it's not that they want to create a product, they want to create a new world. And, and to, to get to that new world requires a new type of financial services that you, know, you guys uh, are, um, you know, are in the way of. So I think there's, a, there's an interesting question here, and I... I remember going to give a speech recently where someone collared me at the end of the the, uh, the speech and started asking me about, you know, how do we get to this utopia? In his view, it's like, how do I get people to understand this? And it's a case of, well, you need to have utility. You need to have something that's actually useful to people now to move along. But the problem was that all great products require, requ require trade-offs. And actually, if you're a fundamentalist, you're not willing to make trade-offs. This is, you know, my view and my direction, and, and therefore everything that, that is not headed directly in, in that direction is not a, um, something that I'm willing to, uh, to undertake. So that's the why did people create Bitcoin question. The original creators of Bitcoin wanted to create peer-to-peer decentralized cash without central banks. They created it in the middle of the global financial crisis, believing that banks are the problem. Bitcoin was the solution to banks existing. Uh, there are many other people, namely banks, who might not think that <laughs> banks are the problem, um, but that actually recognize some other problems. And what's interesting about Amber's comments and what's interesting about some of the other comments is now we wind the clock forward to 2018. 
10 years on, and some of those fundamentalists are still there saying, we need no banks and all people will live with their own Bitcoins and will live in hippie communes and it'll be magic. Uh, but that, and they're still there, but there are other people looking at things like Ethereum and saying, actually, some of the problems that we we're talking about from ICOs to peer-to-peer um, -peer movement of cash, we all have those problems, whether we're in enterprise or we're outside of enterprise. And because we all have those problems, we're coming and Amber saying, well, you need to look at the innovation that's happened outside the system to learn from it. But I think what Rich is saying is, that innovation outside the system has started from the starting point of, well, yes, but there are all of the, we really want to create a new world. And actually, those trade-offs aren't necessarily being made. And I think there's an important nuance within this is Bitcoin started, as you said, with moving cash. It's based around transactions. Banks aren't necessarily based around transactions. They do transactions because they have to. But what they do is they hold something for you. I mean, if you go way back to the beginning of banks, they held gold. That was their vault job. Vault in the next room. There, there's a massive vault in the next room. That's what they do. That's their business. They just have to give you payments. Otherwise, you wouldn't use them, right? You'd go back to cash, which is your payment thing. And if Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, whether it's Ether uh, in the mainnet, um, needs to be based on transactions, it will never compete directly with what banks are trying to build with a quarter or anything else. Now, you can do the other thing that we haven't really hit on, which is interoperability, and I think that's very important. How does a Corda talk to a Quorum talk to a Bitcoin? And that's where some real value is going to start to come in as soon as some of these bankers, you know, get rid of the cobwebs and start accepting Bitcoin and these other things. Um, <laughs> because there are reasons to use them. And we talked about one of them being that globally available collateral. I can pay off a debt on the other side of the planet in less than 10 minutes, which is quite cool. Um, but I need somebody on the other end to accept that. And in Japan, I could probably do that and a bank might take it. Um, if I try to do it in this building, RBS might not. No, no, no. If you, you, you look, you're looking into the third challenge, which is um, you can't be anonymous. You can't be anonymous on the network. If you do, then we start uh, funding terrorism, uh, and that's actually not our requirement as so a you bank. Stop taking cash. It's simply, oh. it's simply actually the regulatory requirement that comes in that requires us to know who we're making payments to, because if we don't, we get fined. So this is the interesting challenge, though. Sometimes regulation is written with the people at the time with the best intentions at the time they wrote it. So um, know your customer is based on, ah, this is how I solve the problem of the 20th century with 20th century technology. But in the 21st century, do I have to know who a person is to know the source of funds, to know the provenance of those funds? Maybe there's other ways to solve that problem. And indeed, much like cash, can I solve the problem because I've already solved it somewhere else with physical cash? But if you look at, look at what's going on in Ethereum right now, uh, the parity bug lost four four hundred million. What was the the number? Oh, was it that high? I thought it was two hundred or something. Two, it was, two, it was big a big number. number. Big number. Parity loses uh, a large amount of money because they send it to the wrong place. There's now a conversational debate going on inside Ethereum, which is about how do we create a process by which we can return those monies, and that's creating an ideological difference, a philosophical difference that the the, the teams are trying to work through, and and the answer is. Well, what we could do is we could have trusted people on the network who could return the monies if we've escrowed it. And you're like, that sounds relatively simple. What we need to do is, I don't know, how about we license them and give them a special name 
And then over the years, people would trust them to hold money and pass money. Blockchain and, application network uh, keys. I don't know. We, 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 could, we could call them, yeah, we could, we could call them something. I don't know, a bank. And you've got to remember that, you know, banks, certainly in this country and in any other country, you can't call yourself a bank unless you have a license to be a bank. And the reason you've got a license to be a bank is because you have, you're fit and proper to run the bank and a trusted, trusted entity. But there are and that's exactly laws. where that debate is going in Ethereum. So it's not about them and us. It's not a public enterprise discussion. It's you can see convergence as they discover, oh, what we actually need is the ability to roll back and undo. Oh, how are we going to do that? We need a set of trusted people. So some of the things are evolving because the laws of the universe mean that you know, gravity happens, water runs downhill, and I think there is that pattern definitely happening. So you're definitely seeing, some, oh, this is how I do economics, right? Um, but there's, there's also a bit of kind of sometimes the regulations were just stupid. Like there is a regulation in the US that says you have to use a fax machine for certain types of financial instrument. That's baked in rules that are wrong. And unless I have the ability to innovate outside the financial system, I'd never challenge that. I mean, it's, a, it's an Elon Musk first order, you know, first principles thinking piece, isn't it? You know, when you're creating a new digital bank or a new digital anything, you're not looking to di digitize. You're looking to take real-time, intelligent, contextual stuff and say, with the problems that we've got in front of us, how would we solve it? But on the other hand, even with um, with founding Monzo or, or the you know digital bank, we went back to original architects who had built two core banking systems in their lives to say like what were the big mistakes well you know we uh, we didn't realize there was a currency that had three decimal places or when hyperinflation hit in zimbabwe and suddenly we were in the trillions the way we represented money causes a real problem so you so while you can do it from first principles actually experience and looking back and having people who have lived that life for a long time not who are just parroting out regulations but understand how these things go wrong and therefore from first principles how should it be built is valuable you you know you shouldn't just sh shouldn't take that engineering mindset of give me enough time and I'll sort it out it's like that's just not going to fly Indeed. All right, I got to move us on because uh, we, we can go on about this one forever, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to um, get to a quick ad and then we've got the last story and then the Q&A. So this week, Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Consensus. I've met many, in fact, Colin's wearing a Consensus t-shirt. Um, um, and they have some real top-notch people involved from computer scientists, designers, and engineers. They actually have 700 people across six continents and they have all kinds of tools, infrastructure. And I think for this audience, they have a lot of educational materials, so check out Consensus, um, as, as do Hyperledger and a few others, I think. Um, so listeners, um, you can, uh, instead of building on the systems of today, um, this, is a, this is a fun uh, fact, <laughs> you can build the future on a blockchain. Um, so they're actively hiring you know, business students and other and talented individuals um, to help them build the decentralized web. Learn more about consensus projects um, by going to consensus.net forward slash blockchain insider. Now this is spelt a little funny. It's C-O-N-S-E-N-S-Y-S dot net forward slash blockchain insider wow you got through the ad this week yeah no that was hot last week when i tried to write speak that out loud oh my god that took 15 goes so you know live audience <laughs> red light fever i'm all about it i feel like round of applause come on <laughs> thank you 
I'm feeling the love in the room. All right, last story before we get to uh, the next bit. Um, story on Bloomberg. Um, Binance, who are one of the big exchanges out there, um, their decentralized exchange is going to list almost any coin, their CEO says. So, Colin, what's Binance? What's a decentralized exchange and why are they doing this? Binance is a cryptocurrency exchange um, that was set up uh, in China originally, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I believe that they're now incorporated in the US or some other, some other place where um, they're less worried about getting locked up in prison because um, that is an actual concern in China nowadays for these guys. Um, they, they decided that um, they were going to list all kinds of cryptocurrencies. So we've talked about you know the Bitcoins, the Ripples, the Ether, uh, Litecoin, some of the, the more well-known. Um, there's literally thousands of these things and they list pretty much all of them. Um, lots of them are more dubious and, and been questioned by regulators. Um, and one of the, the responses is, well, because Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies are decentralized, meaning there's no single point, why don't we do that with how we actually move these things, um, which can reduce some of our costs of having to service them because other people will take care of that, and we're not responsible for it. Um, so again, why blockchain? Because you're breaking the law. See, this disappoints me because the answer for why blockchain can't just be getting around regulation. Like, surely, and I think this is the point about um, enterprise seeing value in some of the tech, but also seeing value in some of the ways that you represent currency or represent different types of asset class. There's a lot there that could be done. Stuff like this really isn't helpful. Um, on the decentralized, so the, the CEO says, on the decentralized exchange, we'll have less control. Um, anybody can list any coin. Um, this is the philosophy, freedom of choice, freedom of investments. But with freedom, there will be people who are scammers. That's something we can't control. Sounds like plausible deniability. Why are you doing this? Like. Yeah, well, you've you, you got to understand that this is a secondary market. So this is a secondary market problem. If you've created a financial instrument as a primary issuer and you issue it, which is what the investment banks do, uh, they bring in uh, equity and debt, then they turn it around and, and push it back out there. You now want to list it so that secondary investors can come in and buy and sell it. And you want a, a market for that. And actually, you want a liquid market of it so you know the price of it so that when you come to a secondary issue, you can, you can get on it. The key point there is if you've got a central exchange that has started to gain a network effect, it gains pricing power. And actually, the exchanges are now charging an extortionate price to list your ICO token. Ah. So the prices I'm starting to see, uh, having been out to Zurich, having been out to Gibraltar, you know, the price that these exchanges are starting to push up uh, to list these tokens is exorbitant because they have a network effect. They now have pricing power they can price gouge, and they are price gouging, which is why, actually, I see this as a relatively uh, simple move to go for a decentralized model, which gives everybody an opportunity to actually have no control over what's listed, but also full control over the pricing of that. So that's an interesting place to find yourself because you potentially get more transparency, more freedom with it. There is upside here. Um, but at the same time, uh, it'd be interesting to see if they had some kind of governance around rule setting of what gets listed from the community, rule setting of how things would get delisted. Because uh, this laissez-faire, you can list anything you want, uh, you know, Wild West, uh, the, whatever goes, goes. 
is not going to make this thing you know kind of fly when people ha when governments have guns right so they can they can come in and they can, they've got courts and eventually you can't arbitrage your way forever but there's some value in this decentralized governance idea to move away from people using that vendor lock-in that price parity that you were kind of talking about but colin because uh, we're pushed for time i'm gonna push to this uh, story here about uh, somebody wants to make paris the capital of the ico that one's just for you well we do know that france is the greatest country on the continent, right? Oh. <laughs> um, so there, there was... Um a set of regulations that are, are being debated in France right now called uh, the Pact. And, and essentially what it's supposed to do is make France more attractive for businesses. They talk about all kinds of things like um, simplifying bureaucracy to making crowdfunding easier. Uh, and one of the things that brought, was brought up in here, and there's an article that came out, said specifically they want to give a visa, uh, I don't know what that means, to ICOs. And this is an optional system apparently where um, the AMF, the, the French regulator, would say, right, you can come in. If you meet the standard, we'll give you a visa that essentially tells everybody you've checked all these things, and that's great. Um, but if you don't get that, that's fine. You still do whatever you want to do with an ICO, which sounds to me like they're going to accept, uh, apparently the rumor is they're going to accept ICOs as a legitimate form of fundraising. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> let's move on. Um, a story we didn't have time to cover. The Economist did a primer on various blockchain-based versions of central bank money. I just want to ask Sarah, what does that mean? Because you guys might want to look this one up. This one's really interesting. Well, what they're talking about there is the difference between central bank money and commercial bank money. And central bank money is issued by the central bank, and it's in the form of cash or res reserves at the central bank. Now, banks will hold some of the money that you deposit there at the central bank and based on you know very various different levels in various different countries the commercial banks will be able to lend against that so central banks a lot of central banks actually around the globe have been looking at how to issue a central bank digital currency or they've been investigating whether it's a good idea or not and there's you know upsides and downsides the upsides would be that they have a lot more uh, visibility than they do with the cash side of central banks. The downside, perhaps from our side, might be that they have a lot more visibility on what we do. <laughs> so, um, but equally, it will potentially reduce their overheads and... So there's a lot of benefits to central banks to having this token-like thing that use something <laughs> like a blockchain. Why don't they just use Bitcoin, Rich? <laughs> Difficult to use Bitcoin where you know, the majority is owned by uh, less than a thousand accounts. So 80% of it's owned by less than a thousand accounts. Like uh, and Richard's not one of them. And, I'm, and unfortunately, I'm not one of them. Um, but the, the key aspect here is, is the giveaways in the title, which is it's a central bank. Yeah. I was, yeah. So, so why would you go about decentralizing a central bank? <laughs> doesn't make any sense to me. The clues you, in the name. Yeah, the clues in the name. If you want to distribute the technology underneath uh, one of these business models, then a central bank's not the place to start. You're trying to decentralize a business model, a clearinghouse and an exchange, which is what we're seeing in the, in the previous story, is the right place to start, where you have a collective of uh, usually competitors, mutually distrusting uh, parties who actually came together. Be that a stock exchange, be that a, a clearinghouse, where we have created those pieces of market infrastructure in the past and then found that that has gained a pricing power and a monopolistic position, those pieces of market utility are actually what we are attempting to try and decentralize. A central bank, if you trust your central bank, 
uh, which we do in, in the UK. Um, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> looked at this actually 80 months ago, years ago, and at one of the spectrum, they, they had their, uh, their academics write what's known as working paper 605, and working paper 605 says, let's just remove all the commercial banks, we'll uptick the GDP, and this will be incredible. Anyway, I love working paper 605. I love working paper 605. Hashtag working paper 605, everyone. So, so that one in the extreme, and at the other end of the stream, uh, extreme, uh, the, this, the Bank of England turned around and went, yeah, that's a great idea, but actually, do we really operationally want to hand over the operational control of our RTGS, our real-time growth settlement system, to the commercial banks or to the corporates and the retail customers? And the answer is no, not a chance. I mean, that's what fascinates me. Uh, and as, as far as I'm aware, um, uh, the way that, that banks send money to each other. So I'm at Barclays, I send money to Simon at HSBC, and I make that transfer happen. And millions of people do the same thing. And then eventually everyone settles up, not by moving lorries full of cash around, but by going to the master ledger that the Bank of England runs with Bank of England settlement accounts. And eventually someone at Barclays says, oh, we owe HSBC. I know I'm simplifying it a bit, but so they move something from one ledger to the other, to the other side in terms of moving these things around. So ultimately, we do have a centralised ledger that where all of the banks settle a number of um, three times a day, something like that. Yeah, which is which is why we're yeah three times a day. So ultimately, all of this money moves around. We sum it all up, and then three times a day the big banks who have these settlement accounts move the money back and forth. So you can see where actually the sort of moving that down to, to, to a bank level and letting everyone settle almost in real time, you know, is an interesting uh, Which piece. we did with Vocalink, which is what net deferred settlement is. So we, we've been here before. Again, it's a move where we've seen the things. I think recognise, though, that what you're looking at here is the decentralisation of a business model. And this yes. is what we'll keep hearing repetitively, which you know, I've been quoted as saying, all we're doing is sitting down, working out whose lunch we're going to go and eat. Okay, And that's a reasonable statement. Anybody else hungry? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a reasonable statement when you realise what's actually happening is somebody's ledger needs to be decentralized or yes. distributed. Yes. So we have to go around each of the business models, and lots of business students and the things, you look at somebody's ledger, be it a clearinghouse, be it a stock exchange, yeah. be it a bank, we're going, to we're going to decentralize or distribute your ledger. Yeah. That's the conversation that's going on right now. The one ledger you're not going to decentralize is a central bank's ledger, uh -huh. the giveaways in the name. Okie dokie. All right, so I'm going to move us to the next bit. We have a tweet of the week provided by the wonderful Preston Byrne, who's at Preston J. Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E on Twitter if you want to follow this. Um, if someone had told me four years from now to the day, you'll be reading an executive proclamation by the President of the United States, who, by the way, is Donald Trump, prohibiting US citizens from buying Venezuelan crypto, I would have laughed at you, yet here we are. Strange times indeed. Especially uh, the Donald Trump part. Yeah, the, the, I think the fact that uh, Venezuela did a cryptocurrency is less weird than Donald Trump is president. I, I, I'm, still, I'm still not quite there. Um, all righty, but we actually caught up with Preston Byrne ahead of last week's show. Let's hear more from him now. Okay, I'm here with an old friend and uh, really interesting character, the one and only 
Preston Byrne. Preston, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm all right. All the better for seeing you. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'd be really curious if you started out just by telling us your journey into the world of crypto, if we can call it that, and blockchain, because um, you've been around for a little while in this space. You were probably one of the first lawyer professionals to have really grabbed it and made a noise about it and said, this stuff's coming. Yeah. So so being a junior associate at a law firm is not something I would inflict on anybody. Um, it, it's really one of the worst experiences you can ever, ever possibly go through. So there's one deal I was working on, you know, just after I qualified, where we went into the office at Tuesday morning at six, and we didn't leave or go to sleep until like three in the afternoon on a Thursday. So so that was that was fun. Um, tons of fun. But anyway, you can understand how a young person going through that process and seeing uh, you know, the arc of their life uh, stretching out over 40 years might become somewhat disconcerted at, uh, at, at the prospect of having that repeat itself uh, numerous times over the course of the next four decades. So as a consequence, I started looking for other things to do uh, that were more interesting. Because if you really, if you're able to, one, one thing that lawyers do, if you, if you look at this, you know, legal history and you see what makes a really, really good, noteworthy lawyer, um, is there's a guy, he'll focus on a particular type of transaction or a partic- particular type of tech, really, really laser sharp. And then what will happen is they'll become the, the go-to, the go-to person. person for right. that. Yeah. And, then you, and that's really interesting because then you get a lot of insight into what's happening. So anyway, I started with blockchain um, tech when a friend of mine said, uh, his name is Zach Caceres, who was running a think tank in Guatemala of all places. And he said, hey, what if we had a system that ran like Bitcoin, but it was an accounting system for a government? Uh, in a developing country that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't be susceptible to fraud. So you had it as an internal accounting system between various government departments. You control the en- the uh, entry points and the exits, and that way you basically eliminate fraud in the inter- interdepartmental transfer. And that, for me, plus Dogecoin, uh, those the dead serious. We were sitting there, and Dogecoin had just come out, and I was like, and then I was like, oh wow, you can have tons of these things. You can have you can have more than like. one, right? So that, that it's not just Bitcoin. Oh wait, I can do other things with this, and it could have real social impact. It could make a difference to people's lives. It could make a difference from a transparency standpoint. And and I guess it probably spoke to some of the reasons why you wanted to be a lawyer in the first place was to kind of ensure the right thing was being done. Yeah, the second the second part of that equation then is the smart contract piece which I, I'd read Nick Zabo like years and years and years ago before I'd gone into law school and didn't really, I hadn't had a chance to wrap my head around it. I didn't really understand how it worked. And just for the listeners, Nick Zabo. Uh, Nick Zabo is uh, one of the rumored uh, suspects uh, to be Satoshi Nakamoto, but also he wrote an essay. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it now. But he wrote an essay basically proposing the automation, uh, the secure automation of financial obligations uh, over public networks. So, and he said, by using cryptography, what we're able to do is we're able to automate these things so you can eliminate the counterparties. You know that these things are going to perform uh, the function that we've set out in computer code. So he made this distinction between hard code, which is computer code, as we all know, and wet code, or wet code and dry code, not hard code and soft code. So wet code and dry code was the distinction he made. And then Ethereum came along. And that implemented everything that he'd been talking about. And I realized at that point, that was something I really needed to start paying very close attention. So Ethereum comes along like late 2013. You go along to a few meetups and you start getting involved in the community a little bit. What happened next? Well, actually, we met you and I at the first London Ethereum meetup, and uh, we drew out a derivatives contract on a napkin while drinking beer. Mm, um, good times. And, and that was fun. Um, I really enjoyed that. So so came along, started looking at, uh, I started, I met Tim Swanson. 
who a lot of people know is, is a early Bitcoin skeptic. Indeed. Episode 26 of um, Blockchain Insider, uh, we actually talked to Tim quite a little bit. Um, Colin had a good old chat with him about you know, just the state of the industry. Tim's a well-known thinker in the space. So, so I, I started looking at what people were promising with the smart contracts and applying legal thinking to, to what those promises were. So when Ethereum started out, it was going to be this globally distributed world computer that would automate all financial obligations, yada, 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 and eliminate all financial counterparties, yada, yada. Um, and there are a couple of problems with that. For example, because the blockchain can't reach out into the real world and go you know, exercise dominion over real assets and physical assets, in order for a smart contract to conform with those descriptions, you have to cash collateralize it 100%, which is really inefficient. So cash collateralize means that I have to have, uh, so let's say it's a car, right? And uh, I bought that car as a lease, right? So um, if, if I was to take ownership of that as a smart contract, in other words, a bit of software, it would have to have have all of the money that that car was worth at the time it was sold available to own that car in effect versus maybe a, a small percentage. I mean, even even more basically, if you wanted to borrow $100, you would have to post $100 of collateral, which of course doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you're doing it from maybe a tax perspective, uh, like Apple was with uh, you know with their offshore vast offshore reserves of cash. But that of course doesn't apply in most consumer transactions. Exactly. So, so it didn't make sense from most consumer transactions or even most business transactions how you would make the blockchain touch the real world. Correct. And there are other issues, too. So the other major one that um, that a lot of smart contract people in the public space don't pay too much attention to is that people like to break their contracts. Sometimes they don't want a contract that will self-perform. They always have the option to breach and then to dare the other side to sue them. And that happens more often than you might think. So so in that sense, it's a, they created a system which was sub-commercial. Um, in in terms of its in terms of what people want from a contract and so what they, they get out of it, like this um, un unstoppable code, unstoppable code, a world computer. But actually, when you look at what people want from the real world, there was a gap. Correct. So so th with that in mind, um, I met two other guys, Casey Coleman and Tyler Jackson, and we created a company called Eris, which basically was a fork of initially a fork of the Ethereum testnet POC3, uh, proof of concept three. And the idea behind that was that you would have the distributed system where you'd be getting the verif you know, the verification of using cryptography, um, the verifiability rather, and uh, the data integrity that you're getting from using blockchain. But you would be able to intervene or control. So basically, it's saying, look, we're benefiting from getting digital signatures and hashes into the enterprise where they don't currently exist and pushing things like SQL logins out uh, and using this as an alternative. So, so that was the start of Eris uh, that later became Monax, which, uh, which continues in business to this day. Uh, but uh, I'm no longer with the company. I'm not doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, that's that. That was, I think, the first permission blockchain. I, I don't think that's a. I'm not trying to boast. I think we were actually the first to to release any code on that front. Uh, and then a lot of other people did very shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that that that's keeping on trucking. The database is now, or the code base is now in uh, Hyperledger as Hyperledger Burrow. And um, and yet, yeah, which is of course, Burrow is is where a marmot lives. It's a hole underground. Um, that's that's the spelling that we're using. And also, I think they've merged it with Intel Sawtooth now. So they now have um, Sawtooth Lake Burrow. Uh, it's called Seth, so it's Sawtooth Ethereum, uh, and that's within Hyperledger under an Apache 2.0 license. Excellent. Um, and so that brings us to today. Um, and now you're kind of, um, I guess, stepping back into the legal profession. You look back upon your time, I think, in the blockchain community with a lot of knowledge um, and, and a lot of kind of uh, perspective, I guess. 
we've been through an interesting journey through 2017. Uh, we saw ICOs come and maybe die uh, in that year. And now we've seen the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, come along and basically bring the ban hammer and start hitting everything that moves um, with subpoenas. You've been saying that this is going to come for a little while. Do you feel like uh, who I was right? Or do you feel like, God damn, now it's time to do the work? What, what, what are your reflections on A, what... Was this always going to happen? And B, what do we do now? This was always going to happen. I'm not rejoicing at the prospect. Um, you know, I, whenever I would come across an entrepreneur, and this continues to this day, uh, who says, I'd like to do an ICO, I say, you shouldn't do an ICO, especially in the United States, um, in my opinion. And I can refer you to half, I'm currently not practicing this year while I get a master's degree in the US. But, um, but when I rejoin practice in September, I, I look forward to giving this advice formally. But basically, people will come along and say, I want to do an ICO. And I say, you know, there are a lot of really good reasons why you shouldn't. Um, I think people thought it, the annoying thing about working in the private blockchain space is that people thought I was talking my own book when I was saying, don't do coins, don't do ICOs. They, so they didn't believe it. They, didn't, they believed that I was simply there saying this interpretation of the technology, permission blockchains, legal compliance, is just you being a Debbie Downer and trying to spoil the party for yeah. everybody else. But if you look to history, the 70s and 80s and the 90s, this has happened before. It's going to happen again. Um, and, and it was inevitable that, that the regulators were going to get involved. Do you think there's some value, though, in this concept of different types of funding for entrepreneurs, global formation of capital? Is there something there in what people were trying to do with ICOs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I absolutely think so. Um, there's a huge demand for alternative higher yield investments that are throwing off better returns than a triple, re, triple B rated bond. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's there. So we have a lot of capital that's looking to be used uh, and invested uh, rather than simply left in a bank idle. I mean, it basically, there's no, there's no benefit to saving anymore. Yeah. So if yeah. you think about it. Yeah, so you, people are looking for a return for their kind of cash or their wealth. They're, they're looking for something delivering me a return. I want to get into the kind of the earlier stage investment life cycle, but at the same time as a consumer, I really can't because I'm not a sophisticated investor. I don't have access to the VC funds. If I do, it's through my Fidelity account or my Hargreaves Lansdowne account through an ETF. And then how much am I really getting? Can I see where my money's going? No, I can't. I want to invest in this type of company. I have a belief that, I don't know, solar is going to be really big, for instance, or, or whatever other technology. It's very hard for me as a consumer to direct at that. Whereas the concept of an ICO, when somebody comes along and does, well, this is a peer-to-peer -peer renewable technology ICO, it's, there's a real clear link between purpose and investment but then there's a real gap in terms of consumer protection and, and, and other pieces that you'd expect. Yeah so if we look at the difference between your old world investment and your new world ICO and by ICO we're talking about a really when I say that I'm referring to a very specific mode of raising capital from investors where you've got something which you really should be registering or you really sh at least in the US um, you know full disclosure I'm an English lawyer and not yet an American one but you know the general view is that you should be registering these things in the US and um, and you choose not to do it because you would rather go and get that retail access to you know Bitcoin holders and, and Ethereum holders directly. So that I think that you know that's the one extreme. The other is old legacy systems. In between, there's a way that you can use this stuff to automate your compliance, to automate your auditability, to automate your issuance procedures, to automate your due diligence. Um, by just like a coin, you preset the parameters, you push go and it runs itself. Similarly, we're going to have systems and we're starting to see companies that are building them that are seeking to automate all of this onboarding. And that's kind of the happy medium between the fully regulated old world paper-based position 
and the Wild West ICO position, which showed how inadequate the paper position is at addressing market needs. Do you think there's some nuance, though, between when uh, Jamie Dimon says we like the technology but not the currency? Is there some nuance in that actually this idea of new types of asset class could have some value? There is. I mean, I, I, I tr- that's obviously a, a, a sort of hackneyed trope, which is we like the blockchain, not the Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, I, you know, but um, but I think Bitcoin will be around. I think things like it will be around. Do I think it's going to become a, a default uh, for mainstream financial transactions? No. The reasons are broadly similar to why I didn't think ICOs were going to take off um, because the regulators won't tolerate it. And so when you start playing with the big boys and start playing in the real world with real assets, governments have an ability to enforce their laws. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin in 2009, they didn't really care. Bitcoin today, they'd rather do. And so those solutions that get adopted will What's be interesting to wild. me, though, is I see that Bitcoin's very different to token sale ICO land, and that Bitcoin is creeping towards legitimization. It has a futures market now. It has OTC desks that are regulated. It has exchanges that, that could become trading venues soon, you know, exchanges in, in air quotes. Um, and that, that you know, there's a bit license in New York. There's Arguably, the OTC desks uh, in that are trading Bitcoin have a higher regulatory burden than an OTC desk in securities markets. They have to be regulated in a whole bunch of different ways in a whole bunch of different jurisdictions versus some random token that's only being really used in the dark web. There's, there's a spectrum within the spectrum sort of thing. So gazing into the crystal ball, what, what, what happens next? Do we see people starting to innovate around the global formation of capital? Do we see ways in which um, you know, the old fintech story of people, consumers starting to be able to get access to investment products that were only available to professionals before, provided the right controls are in place? Or do you see kind of more of the same of the last 20 years with a tech upgrade? It, what's, what, how's this play out? Coins are a gateway drug. Um, You know, they always say, you know, when you're 10 years old, well, you know, weed's a gateway drug. Don't do it. Don't start. Coins are the gateway drug. They've gotten people accustomed to the idea of buying securities on their own in this fully automatic manner. And there's a whole infrastructure which has sprung up around it, which is allowing them to go do that. That infrastructure, I will expect, would expect, um, is going to move to become compliance. So Circle's uh, uh, acquisition of Poloniex, I think, is, is a really strong indication of where things are going to go. And when that happens, there's going to be a huge incentive by the companies that are developing this infrastructure to say, we're going to automate the rest of the compliance picture here so we can keep these users, this massive user base we've just built, and start selling them legitimate investments um, that are legally compliant. So the infrastructure that's been built to a certain extent, yeah, I think it's going to continue. Interesting times. Preston Byrne, where can people find out more about you if they're curious to know your blog and your, your Twitter handle? Yeah, so my uh, blog is PrestonBurn.com. That's B-Y-R-N-E. And my Twitter handle is Preston J. Byrne. Preston J. Byrne, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. No problem. My pleasure. Alrighty, thank you very much to the interview with Preston Byrne, and thank you to the audience who had a bit of a private Q&A that the listeners of the podcast didn't hear, so you'll have to come to our next Blockchain Live. Uh, so that concludes our first live Blockchain Insider. A big thank you to uh, my co-host Colin Platt and Jason Bate. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Colin? Uh, Colin G. Platt on Twitter. On, on Twitter. And you, Jason? At Jason Bates. Brilliant. And what about you, Sarah? I'm personally at Seronimo, or you can find our company Clearmatics at Clearmatics.com or at Clearmatics. That's a great Twitter handle, by the way. Um, and uh, Richard, where can people find it more? You can find me personally at Rick Crook, uh, or uh, I work for the Royal Bank of Scotland. 
brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Where can we find out more about that? Is that something? So that's a, a something network token that Colin was saying. <laughs> blockchain application network token. Providing providing services for three hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have to thank our amazing production team here at Eleven FS. So you've got Ollie Judge up in the corner. We have Laura Watkins that's been helping us out. Um, of course, our producer Michael Bailey, Simone doing the stuff, and Petra who's not here. Please give them a round of applause. Eleven FS, the company that bring you this podcast, are a challenger consultancy who help banks or anybody with a problem or challenge in blockchain to achieve more. If you want to understand how you could commercialize any of this blockchain stuff or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. Thank you for listening. Of course, if you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. We want all of this. You've got to leave a review on iTunes, right? You're going to do that for us? I'm looking you in the eyes, okay? Uh, uh, spread the word. Tell all your friends and everybody you meet on the street to listen to. Uh, and we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. For now, goodbye. <laughs>